And with regard to that martial law thing, in 1958, President Eisenhower established a system which designated emergency administrators who would be placed in charge of the American economy and infrastructure in the event of a massive disaster. There are things like the Emergency Censorship Agency, the Emergency Food Agency, the Emergency Manpower Agency, and a bunch of others that would take vast control of portions of American life. And this plan was the procedural ancestor of the series of executive orders that would emerge in the 60s and 70s that had pretty much the same idea behind them. Those executive orders would be used in the 80s and 90s as, in, in, in sarcasm quotes, evidence that the subjugation of the American people was a pen stroke away. Uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, was was often targeted as the villain in such a scenario. And while these contingency plans and the facilities to support them were arguably sensible, given the nature of the Cold War, as that conflict wound down in the first half of the 90s, those plans stayed in place. Um, we don't have as much fear of massive nuclear war, we thought we didn't, um, after the Cold War. And so why would the plans for how to reorganize our entire society and turn us into a dictatorship stick around once that threat was gone? So that fueled some theories as well. So during the 1990s, the increase in the frequency of political conspiracy narratives makes, makes it sort of inevitable that given the equal prevalence of alien conspiracy theories that were forming at the time, that these things would bleed into each other. And that while consistently conspiratorial, the UFO thing had mostly stayed away from the hardcore political conspiracy theories of the time. If you look at the 60s and the 70s, there's there's concern and fear and, and assumption of a government cover-up of UFOs, but you don't see people talking about the government cover-up of UFOs and then tying it into the Trilateral Commission or the Federal Reserve Bank or the United Nations. In the 80s and 90s, you would start to see that sort of thing happen. So, like many of the conspiracy theories and narratives that have emerged since World War II, the suspicion that the United States government, particularly the military, is engaged in constructing hidden subterranean installations for sinister purposes is rooted in the geopolitical realities and assumptions of the Cold War. With the possibility of a large-scale nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviets looming on the horizon, the military and other agencies, like the Department of Energy, investigated the possibility of moving key elements of industrial production and military operations into underground, what they called hardened sites. A 1961 report um, said that in the early 1950s, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers commissioned a study to see if this was possible to it was if it was possible to build underground bases and how much it would cost, and even to the point of operating um, what were they called strategic defense plants underground. So basically, the um, the assumption is that that based on our experience in World War II, uh, they determined that it was a good idea to move corporate headquarters, manufacturing facilities, everything we might need to produce war material underground. 
the advantages for corporations of preparing to move their facilities underground were, to the army, obvious. Advanced planning was preferable to the potential for frantic and expensive efforts to combat the effects upon both civilian and military morale, let alone material production, after the first atom bomb has fallen in our midst. That's taken from that 1961 report, and it makes sense, after all. It's best to build your bomb shelter before the bombs start falling. The report was focused on the construction of industrial production facilities, so it was, of course, aimed at corporate America and the defense work they would doubtless provide in World War III as they had in World Wars I and II. And it's telling, I think, that the authors of this report equated the survival of corporate assets to the survival of, quote, our national life. It's a very 19, 1950s, 1960s touch. Other below-ground elements implemented during the Cold War are less obscure than underground industrial facilities. Nuclear-tipped ICBMs were sunk below the surface of the earth in launch silos throughout the country, placed on farms and ranches and in more remote areas. Like other conspiracy narratives, uh, there's a degree of truth underlying stories of mysterious underground facilities built around our country, largely without public knowledge. And at the very least, the technological means existed from the opening decades of the Cold War to construct those kinds of installations. Now, in addition to missile silos and bomb-resistant factories, one of the key purposes for underground facilities, and the one that's prone to the most conspiratorial elaboration, including some of the stuff we're going to see later today, is the preservation of vital government functions, um, continuity of government plans and programs that begin in the late 1950s after the Soviets detonate their first nuke. Uh, the one most well-known to people is um, Mount Weather, uh, which is located in the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 50 miles from Washington, D.C. Um, declassified documents from the early 60s paint a picture of a facility that was clearly designed to be a home for the military and political figures who might inhabit it and that they would be there for a while. Um, the memo from uh, a memo from 1961 talks about recreational facilities, ping pong tables, four of them, an indoor driving range, uh, producing TV and movies in house as entertainment for the people living in this base. Also emerging in the 50s and much less well known is the Raven Rock Mountain Complex, which was established as sort of an alternate Pentagon by President Truman. Um, and these facilities had purposes that were sensible given the geopolitical situation at the time. There's necessary aspects of government planning uh, that had to take place, and later these would contribute to conspiratorial narratives, particularly those of martial law descending upon the United States. And some of those political theories about martial law, you know, sort of deeply tie into the alien conspiracies of the time. So to summarize so far, there's ample documentation that the government has built and may continue to build subterranean facilities for various purposes. These date back to the Cold War era of needing to have to protect vital assets from nuclear attack. Nobody really denies that that is a thing. The question is, what is the secret behind these deep, dark bases and what does it have to do with our friends in the flying saucers? Speeches and discussions. Hear speakers who have contacted our space brothers. Picnic. Lots of music 
astronomical telescope, see the craters on the moon, etc. Public invited, spread the word. Do not miss the big event. Admission 50 cents and $1 donation. Children under school age free. Bring your own tent, house car, or camping outfit, folding chairs, sleeping bags, etc. Free camping. Cafeteria on the grounds with fried chicken, sandwiches, coffee, cold drinks, etc. At Buck's Mountain View Ranch, Route 1, Mountain View, Missouri. Here's a final story about hairy little men from that issue. Yelling, without his shirt and with a terrified look on his face, Jose Parra, 18-year-old jockey of Valencia, Venezuela, arrived at the offices of national security in the early morning of December 19th and related his hair-raising tale of how a hairy little man tried to kidnap him. Immediately upon his arrival, Parra was detained by Mr. Lopez Araya, commissioner of criminology, until his nerves could calm down. Detectives detailed to examine the place where the incident happened found tracks which they were not able to identify as either those of man or an animal. Para, out doing road work to lose some extra poundage, stopped near a cement factory on the highway where he was surprised to see six little men, all very hairy, who were engaged in pulling boulders from the side of the highway and loading them aboard their disc-shaped craft which was hovering less than a foot from the ground. Para, startled and frightened, started to run away to call someone else to watch the site. At this point, one of the men spotted Para, pointed a device at him which gave off violet light. Para was unable to move and stood by helplessly while the little creatures ran to their ship and leapt aboard. The craft then disappeared into the sky. One hour after Mr. Para's experience, a brightly lighted disc was seen hovering a few feet from the ground near the Barbula Sanatorium for Tuberculars at Valencia. Two hospital employees saw the object at different times, one at about 12 midnight and the other at about 3.15 a.m. The fellow who witnessed the earlier incident notified no one for fear of disturbing the hospital patients. The man involved in the latter incident attempted to approach the craft for a better look, but it moved away and ascended into the air. Out doing road work to lose some extra poundage. That's going to the top of my weight loss tips, and I will refer to any excess weight I ever carry as extra poundage from now on. Oddly, and I don't know why this is, I find the standalone phrase, the mini horses and donkeys, to be oddly sinister. Um... I, I don't know. I just just see it's on a it's on, a, on sort of a bullet point by itself or something, and it just says the mini horses and donkeys. I find mini horses distressing anyway. For that fourteen hundred fifty dollars, by the way, you don't get airfare, food, or lodging. I also see no guarantee, written or implied, of which parallel world you may end up in. With my luck, I'd end up in the one where Zima became the only beverage available, supplanting beer, wine, and Mountain Dew Code Red. Anyway, I've I've gone down the rabbit hole of, of cetacean communication. Joan Ocean has done some work on Sasquatch. I can't read the word Birdman without thinking of the old Hanna-Barbera Birdman cartoon. I, I just, now I'm picturing Harvey Birdman, attorney at law, showing up, teaching the mound builders about mound building or something like that. 